how you organize your life is a spiritual matter. The parable of the unforgiving servant, found in Matthew chapter 18, it teaches us the importance of how we organize our lives. We must have a grateful heart, and we must be grateful for the forgiveness that has been given to us, and we must have Christ-like virtues guiding our hearts and our actions as we interact with the world. This text reminds us that God holds it a sin to be a hypocrite, and he shows us what true hypocrisy really is, because so many times we conflate hypocrisy with somebody who just has a fall, but we're going to get into all of that today. Overall, we must organize our lives with Christ-like virtues that start with ourselves and that happens with ourselves there in our own heart before we go out making demands of others. All right, so thank you for joining us, and welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I am Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there's one other with me here in the studio. Pastor Anthony Alegria. So today, in this parable, we're going to look at a text which has a very practical insight. It's one that shows us how to organize our lives if we are to be both successful and righteous. God desires that we have joy and be fruitful in life. And these good things, they start with how we organize our lives on the personal level. God holds it a sin to demand that others be merciful and we harbor violent animosity in our own hearts. We are all God's children and regardless of our station in life, we are all to live by the same principles. If we want the good things in life that God has in store for us, we must start with the matters in our own personal lives that we can handle. Throughout this message, I'm going to be talking about how we organize our lives. And I want to, to be very clear in what I'm talking about here. I am talking about the practical aspects of how we live daily. When we start projects in our life, do we finish them? And this is true whether we're at work or we're at home. Do we say the Lord's Prayer three times a day? How is our time spent throughout the day? What sort of attitude do we embody when we interact with others? This is what I'm talking about when I use the phrase, how we organize our lives. And I want us to be looking at ourselves and ask questions like, do we really know what we believe? Do our actions reflect what we think we believe? If they don't, then we probably don't believe what we think we do. How we organize our lives is very important, and God desires us to be righteous as individuals. We must realize that, again, how we organize our lives is a spiritual matter of the heart. It's not just a technical matter. It's not just a technical matter of details. Whenever we're making decisions, whether it be going out to purchase a car, or we're wanting to go on a date, or we're going to engage in some fun or pleasurable activity, we must realize that our hearts will entertain a lot of ideas that our brains know to be foolish. The heart will create all sorts of justifications to convince the mind to do things that the mind knows better than to do. And over the, the years of my ministry, I've had different definitions for wisdom, but for now I'm saying that wisdom is the mind's victory over the heart. If we can realize that how we organize our lives is a spiritual matter, then we can negotiate with our heart on terms that it understands and be better equipped for wisdom. Leaving life organization alone to be just a technical thing with spreadsheets and say, this is what I was doing from 8 a.m. to 8, 15 a.m., you know, the heart does not care about that. Your heart doesn't care to go over there and read from the phone book. Your heart wants something persuasive. And spiritual matters, they are persuasive. This is speaking the language of the heart. And if we want to make sure that our lives are being Christ-like and they're organized, we can't just have this relationship between our mind, the reasonable side of things, and our heart, the empathetic emotional side of things, and let them try to duke it out with those separate terms. Because the heart cares very little for technical matters. People are not persuaded by things which are just pure technicality. People want something that is persuasive. And when you're even negotiating with yourself, when you're making decisions, again, whether it be something like, am I going to finish the projects I start? Do I want to go on a date? God really does care about these things. 
And we are going to be better equipped to live righteously if we come to the table of our life recognizing everything we do is a spiritual matter. And I'm not saying you got a plaster live, love, laughed on, on your car when you, you're driving to work or put it there in front of you at your, your desk at work. What I'm saying is you must realize that everything you do is a spiritual matter. Your attitude when you go to a fast food restaurant, your attitude when you work at a fast food restaurant, all of these things, there are spiritual matters. And if we come to our heart on spiritual terms, we can negotiate and be better equipped for wisdom. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through, 20, through 35. And I'm going to ask if Pastor Anthony would read just the first few verses of that. So just read verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. All right, so this is a fascinating thing. Peter is asking a very legitimate question, and there's legitimate reasons for this question. A lot of times we want to beat up Peter. Peter certainly has some falls, but Peter realizes there are people who will take advantage of your forgiveness, and they will, will try to cheapen your grace. And there are people who will try to cheapen the grace of God, and that's held to be a sin. Nonetheless, we are called and commanded to be forgiving, for our Heavenly Father is forgiving. And we're going to get into the rest of this text, but I want to just take a moment to emphasize those first few verses because organizing your life around forgiveness is something which is quite essential. It is very fundamental to where we're going. And with that being emphasized, I'll let Anthony pick up in verse 23 and read all the way down to 35. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and the payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him by the throat. He said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had on you? And in his anger, his lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Most of us are going to read this text and find that we relate to the servant who has debt rather than the king who is in a position to forgive large swaths of debt. I do not personally know any earthly kings or other such heads of states, and it's highly unlikely that many of us do. Now, this isn't totally relevant in the course of, of things because, as we will find from studying this text, it's quite clear that we must live by the same morality, regardless of our place in society. But all the same, I want us to look at this text and place ourselves in the shoes of this servant. He has financial troubles. He has a family. He has aspirations. These are all practical things that can stress us out. 
I can imagine that there are several of you listening to this message that have experienced significant stress over finances within the last 12 hours. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I know that someone listening to this message has had significant financial stress within the last 12 hours. We can read this, this piece of scripture and know that this is very relevant to us. I'm a 28 year old man. I think about finances a lot. Now I give thanks to God and I trust him to provide for me so long as I am righteous and put forth good work. But I find myself praying that I'm not sinful in my financial worries. I'm certain that there are many of you who feel the weight of financial matters in your personal life. Perhaps you deal with great amounts of debt as is seen with the servant in this text. This is a character that is very relatable. We, we can see ourselves in this servant's shoes. And the Holy Scriptures, they teach us a very important lesson in this parable. We must start with mercy and righteousness in our own hearts before we start demanding others in the world be merciful. We have to start organizing our personal lives righteously before we start demanding that our situations improve. We're not supposed to separate people out by classes and say that the kings must be charitable without having first charity in our own hearts. How we organize our lives is a spiritual matter. There is spiritual warfare going on in the servant. And you can see it. You can imagine yourself there and see the warfare. You can hear, you know, we always have that stereotypical scenario where you've got the angel on one side and the little devil on the other. That's really where this servant is. His soul was graced with great charity. We can only imagine the joy that you would have running through him when he found out he's no longer in debt. However, the moment doesn't last long. He, that lasts only a few seconds. The carnal nature doesn't care for the value of this forgiveness. The carnal nature totally disregards the whole deal with 10,000 talents, and his forgiveness is forgotten. And sin consumes him, and he grabs his fellow man by the throat. I want us to talk now about two gifts in this story. The slave in the story, he's really been graced with two gifts from his master. The first gift is material. And it's pretty obvious. We can see that the master is charitable in releasing his slave from the great amount of financial debt that he's accumulated. And that's that first gift, the material gift. The second gift is immaterial. In other words, it's not something you can reach out and touch with your hand and hold like I can hold this ink pen in my hand or the you must obey seat at the table coin from when we were doing Friday's program. We find that these things are material, but then there are things which are immaterial. And that's where the second gift come in. The second gift is immaterial. It is the example and standard of forgiveness that is the great gift for the slave. Now, this second gift, it takes a bit of further examination to find. However, it is the second gift that is a true gift of meaning. And it's also one that is onerous on the slave to receive and embody. It's very easy to receive um, debt forgiveness, but it's very difficult to receive transformation in the heart. Um, that's just human nature. That's what the, the carnal nature has done to us. When it comes to these two gifts, we see that the man is much more interested in the material gift than he is in the immaterial gift. He's very happy to be released from his debt of 10,000 talents, but he's uninterested in receiving the gift that brings virtue to his heart. Now, really, there are three notable figures in this story. Obviously, there's the king who is forgiving his slave, and then there's the slave who owes 10,000 talents to the king and gets forgiven. But then there's also the slave who owes 100 denarii to his fellow slave. And one of the lessons in this story is that the capacity for sin does not change with respect to one's socioeconomic status. All people have the capacity for sin. 
The king is not the king is not sinful just because he's a king, and the servants, the slaves, however that may be translated, they're not sinful just because they are, and they're not necessarily innocent just because they are servants. They're they're not. They're just as equally capable of of sin as the king is. Jesus wants a relationship with us that is not just that material transaction. In the book of Job, the accuser, Satan, he comes and says, Ah, God, Job isn't really righteous. He's just here for that material transaction of the things you give him. That's one of the oldest accusations. It's, in fact, the oldest recorded accusation we have, though. The story there from the the garden, it is older in its tradition. But as far as the writing goes, we've had these temptations to only accept the material gift for a long time. Jesus wants us to open our hearts and receive the immaterial gifts that change the heart. Now, these are the ones that are going to bring us true joy. They're going to bring true peace in life. And they're the ones that really impact creation around us. They're going to be the ones that change society, change culture. They're going to have a big impact on the world. Now, I want us to change gears a little bit and talk about liberating the oppressed and kind of put this story in the larger context of Scripture so that we can have a nice, holistic understanding of what's really going on here. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he states his mission, and he does so by echoing the prophets. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we can find him saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So after we read that, and then we look back at this unforgiving servant, We have to ask ourselves, what does it really mean to release the captives and let the oppressed go free? I mean, this sounds very much related to a slave who has a great debt to a king. I mean, we can look at Jesus' mission there, and we can look there at what we find and say, these two, they clearly line up. This is something where it seems very relevant. And even if we do a little bit of studying, we'll understand that the year of the Lord's favor is also connected to debt forgiveness. So in this text, we find a man who is forgiven of his debts. But yet he is still acting sinfully. And that takes us back to that question, what does it really mean to let the oppressed go free? What does it really mean? What is Jesus really here to do? We know that this man, this servant, this slave, he uses his freedom to violently demand payment from his fellow servant. In this parable, we are reminded that the freedom offered by Jesus is truly deeper than a material gift. We we know that. The servant, he wasn't just expected to be joyful because he got his debt paid, but he was also expected to be forgiving. We know that God desires for us to have joy in life. And while that may have some blessing for us in terms of our material lives around us, we may live comfortably. Um, It's, of course, the immaterial things, the things which are deep within our heart that matter the most. In order for the oppressed to truly be free, they must have experienced a change that is deeper than just a material gift, than just a simple transaction of money. It's not enough that they be released from a debt by their king, for a debt can be forgiven without any change happening in the heart. One who has not been liberated from the carnal nature of sin will still continue to do sin against their fellow man. And this is where I want us to talk about hypocrisy and the truth of hypocrisy. Because this text shows us what true hypocrisy is. Real hypocrisy is when you have different standards for different people. So many times we want to say you're a hypocrite if you are trying to live by a standard and you make a slip up. We see things like Peter coming in. 
he gets called, you know, get behind me, Satan, by Jesus when he says, Lord, forbid that you'll die on the cross. Peter's not so much being a hypocrite as he just doesn't understand. He doesn't have a complete belief system yet. Hypocrisy is when you you are somebody, you're a Sunday school teacher, maybe you're a preacher, and you're up there preaching against pornography and sin, and you're running a house of prostitution on the side where suddenly you're teaching one thing, but you're completely comfortable, and you will even justify saying, well, it's moral for me to do this. I need the extra income. I'm doing this. It's just a business. You know, when you're having different standards for people, if you're coming along and saying the king needs to live one way, but the, the servants need to live another way, that's actually hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not having a fall or not understanding your own beliefs. Hypocrisy is when you, you have asserted beliefs and you have asserted that there are different beliefs for different people. It's kind of like polytheism. It's another conversation for later. What we find here is that the unforgiving servant, he finds it good that the king's an institution. So the national level institutions, he says, it's good that they forgive debts and they pay bills for those who don't have much power or money of their own. It's good that the institutions which he owes money to have a model of forgiveness and charity. However, the unforgiving servant has a totally different set of standards and virtues when dealing with someone on his level when he was more relatable to him. Because let's be honest, that servant probably knows his fellow servant a lot better than he knows the king. They're probably interacting with one another more. And for the one who owes the other servant money, the, the servant there who's got this two different set of systems, he's merciless. He grabs his fellow man by the throat and violently demands payment. The unforgiving servant has a different set of standards for different people and how they relate to him. Now, Christ holds it a sin for us to have different standards for different people. And we hold it, we know that if we're to be Christ-like, then we've got to live as Jesus wants us to live. And Jesus holds it to be sinful for us to have a different personal morality than we do for the world around us. Now, this is an area where I am going to be talking about different levels of, of society. We don't need to have a different personal morality than we need to have a national morality. The unforgiving servant does not have his finances order, but he expects others to. Moreover, he expects forgiveness for himself, but not for others. I want to talk now about how this contrasts the world. There are a lot of people in our world who feel financial burden. Even when they have moments free of financial stress, they may find other worries that plague them. Do I have a job that I can live with? Do I appreciate the job I have? Will I find a mate that I can love who will return love to me? Is there any purpose to what I'm doing? Am I, any, am I in good health enough? Am I, am I capable of living life like I, I want to? These are all questions which place burdens on our mind that we stress over. We're hoping that someone can come to alleviate these things. And it's very real that people look around at their world and they say, I want something to change. The gospel is that change that our hearts really is longing for, though many times we're tricked. We're, we're tempted to think that it's just the worldly structures. Instead of getting to the root of the world around us, we just look at little things, which are surface-level manifestations of sin. Many people want to start by forcing the world to be different so that we can have access to the things that we lack. And God wants us to be holistically blessed in life, but we cannot have this blessing if we do not start with our own lives. Jesus holds it to be a spiritual matter how we organize our lives. And Jesus is constantly teaching us that it is what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that is what defiles. And you can go look in Matthew uh, chapter 15, verse 18, to find that specific reference. 
We are defiled by what comes out of our heart rather than what goes into our mouth. In other words, it's not the things that that start outside the world and come into us that defile us, but instead it's the things that start within ourselves and go out into the world that defile us. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, and he is just in his judgment and will only hold us accountable for the things that we have uh, some control over, things that come out of us as individuals. So again, this whole idea, there's going to be a lot of people in the world who don't like this, especially in the modern day and age. There are going to be many voices you will hear who will oppose this message that I am saying. They will oppose the idea that all people must start with personal righteousness before anything else. And they're going to do this by saying servants and kings do not need to be held to the same standards. These voices, they will argue that the servants lack power. Therefore, they're unable to be charitable. They're unable to be financially responsible because they lack power. But yet, the parable shows us lacking in this logic. But I don't just want to say that it shows lacking in this logic. Let's just for a moment entertain this premise and take it to its logical occasion, uh, logical conclusion. So we're going to play a little bit of, of just Socratic method looking at the other side here. Imagine that the king is held to a standard where he must be charitable. And he forgives the debt of the servant that owes him 10,000 talents without any expectation that the servant will likewise be charitable. Now, if you're the third individual addressed in this text, the servant who owes 100 denarii to his fellow servant, do you suddenly feel better about the hand grabbing your throat? Does that hand grabbing your throat have less lethal force because the person who has given it to you is another servant? He's another slave and he was forgiven of his debt? Anthony, do you think that that hand around your throat is going to feel any better because the, the king forgave that hand? You know, it might feel a little worse because at least then you'd be like, this guy should have went to prison or whatever, be sold as a slave. And now the king forgave him and he can choke me. Yeah. You know, he could have, he should be off being a slave. And somewhere. you're on to something that is important about the logical conclusion of this. We'll get there in a second. But to the question of oppression, are you less oppressed because the king forgave a debt that you had nothing to do with? No. No. The answer is no. Because your fellow servant will then turn against you. And honestly, if it was a debt that you took, you're really not any less oppressed if someone forgives you a debt anyways. If you took out a debt and you subjected yourself to that, that's not oppression. That's just you suffering the consequences of your actions. Well, well but we're going to we're right now just entertaining this idea that because the servant class doesn't have power, they're held at different standards, but I, I, I yeah, I see where So you're we're, we're entertaining the other side of this using Socratic method. What happens is if you take this to its logical conclusion that the king must be charitable but you don't have to expect anything from the the servant class or at some will translate this text the slaves is that what you have happening is the most violent aspects of human nature are going to be allowed to roam free. In fact, they're being paid to roam free without any consequences. While the struggling and burdened among you, those aspects of human behavior, they are plagued evermore. You may think that you're being merciful by saying the king must be charitable, but not expecting anything of the, the servants, the slaves. But what you will find is that oppression is going to be even more rampant when you don't require all people, kings and slaves alike, to live righteously you will find that the oppressed are still oppressed because one servant, one slave is just as capable as a king is of making your life miserable. And now, again, we, 
we know that God holds that each individual needs to have personal agency and, and personal value. So the whole notion of slavery is not what God intends for, for humanity. Um, that's, that's very clearly the case. But when we look at history, we know that oftentimes the most violent to other slaves were those who were the high up on the hierarchy. You see this even even Auschwitz, even more violent than the guards there were the prisoners who were being paid by the guards to some extent, whether it be cigarettes. You find that it's your fellow inmates that are more violent against you than it is the, the guards. You find that in the slaves, a lot of times the house slaves, they would be more violent to the other slaves than were the masters. And that is because the sin nature is what is causing the problems in the world. The sin nature is. Structures that allow slavery and stuff like that, they're from the sin nature. And we have to address that on that spiritual level if we want to make significant change. And what you will find is if you allow this, this notion to, to be permitted that, well, hold the kings accountable and not the slaves, is that you're just basically paying people to be violent is what that will end up being. And people will say, oh, well, that's just a parable in the Bible. Now, this really does happen. You see a lot of times, and many of you have probably experienced giving someone money on the side of the road, and you watch them go across the street and go in there to buy booze with it. You, you've just paid someone to lie to you to go get booze. The sin nature must be dealt with, not just the debt. Furthermore, if we will take a moment to examine our world, we'll find that it is the sin nature that is responsible for oppression and captivity in this world. Kings and servants must alike have their hearts chained. All of us are, are sinners. We must all have our hearts changed, and all of us must be living lives that are organized around Christ-like and Christ-like love and Christ-like forgiveness. We are commanded to be charitable and forgiving. But we are not God, and our actions have no power to save others or to change their hearts. Furthermore, God, who is the master of creation, he does not revoke people's free will. Christ Jesus always leaves people with the choice to choose him or to reject him and remain on the way of death. We cannot allow ourselves to be fooled into thinking that charity automatically changes the heart of those that receive gifts. There are a lot of people who believe that. They say, well, if you just do this for somebody, suddenly they won't be sinful. That, that is not true. That is just not true. There are many times when people take advantage of charity only to turn around and continue the same sins that place them in the need of charity. People must be willing to transform, and they must be willing to receive the power of God that will quicken them for transformation. You cannot force transformation on others. We must start by organizing our lives in other words, we must start with what we see around us. Anthony? And you really can't manipulate true transformation either, no. especially into um, the selfless love of Christ. Uh, all like the tools of manipulation, all they do is encourage the worldly side of things. Yeah. So maybe you can manipulate someone into becoming more worldly, but I'm not, I don't think that you can really manipulate someone into becoming more Christ-like. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we find is that those who would insist kings and servants live by different morals, they are by definition insisting that hypocrisy is good. They're definitionally demanding hypocrisy be the standard, that you have multiple standards for different people, and it's just bad. That, and it's very sad because it does nothing to trans people's, transform people's hearts, and it's, it's very, very sad. Well, and if you want to talk about something that is like elitism or something like that, the the belief that somebody should be king is not really elitism. That's just recognition of somebody's talents and abilities. Um, 
But sometimes. what would be sometimes. But <laughs> Most of the times, be, probably not. But, but a lot what, more tyrants in history than, than good kings. Definitely true. But um, what would be elitism would be to say that only people who are kings are capable of, of giving charity. Yeah. Only people who are kings are capable of being graceful and forgiving other people their debts. And, you know, if if you don't believe that, <laughs> the opposite really is to say that I don't think it's maybe, – maybe it's not the only other option that you have, but it's definitely the main other option, which is that everybody should be able to be graceful and be forgiving. Yeah. Well, many of my peers are plagued with large amounts of college debt. Furthermore, there's a rather large desire for this debt to simply be erased. But the lesson from this story is that forgiving debt can enable people to be monsters if their hearts do not accept the virtue of forgiveness into their deep within that heart. They don't place that there where it belongs, then bad things can happen. It's rare that people appreciate the cost of things that they receive as a gift. Often, when people perceive something as being free, they make the mistake that they think, they think the gift didn't cost anything to anyone. It had no significant cost to the world. And people are harming themselves when they do this. And people even do this with the grace given to us by God. People are harming themselves when we cheapen the grace that comes to us and we believe that it has no significant cost. They are the servant, taking the material gift of debt forgiveness while rejecting, rejecting the immaterial gift of transformation in the heart. So let's wrap this up talking about how we organize our life. Christ teaches us to organize our lives around him. The kingdom of God is a full kingdom, and its members do everything except be idle in advanced sin. There are fishermen. There are tent makers. There are soldiers. There are teachers. There are servants. There are all sorts of positions. God has called us out of all sorts of places. There are people who were slaves called to be godly men and women and called out of that. There are people who are kings and queens. We find those like Queen Esther, queen of a massive empire, and they all, whether they be slaves, servants, somewhere in the middle, somewhere at the top, it doesn't matter. They must all live by the same example that God set forth. They must all live by the same morality from the God that spoke creation into place. Therefore, we know that God does care about how we live our lives. He cares if we finish projects after we start them. He cares about the financial decisions we make. He cares about how we do our jobs in a factory just as much as he cares about how we organize our homes. Certainly, there are things of little consequence, such as the color of our clothes or the earthly credentials attached to our name. But overall, Christ wants us to be righteous. This is the idea of having things in proper order. God is a God of order, and he expects his people to be a people of order. He does not want us to live lives of chaos. So that's where we're going to wrap this message up, and I thank you for joining us. I'm going to ask if Pastor Anthony will close in prayer for us as we draw this to its end. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that um, we might be able to proceed out into the world after hearing this message, proclaiming to the world the good news by the way that we live. Lord, we pray that we might have um, the same expectations that we have, that you have for us, for one another, in the same way that we should love one another as you love us. Lord, um, we pray that you may help us to live righteously, to live in the right relationship with you, with our neighbor, with the things that we steward over, and even ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we can live properly in the order that you've established. All this according to your will, in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. With that, God love you, and have a blessed day.